Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 54 Gaming Terms, or Wayne Gets a Redo. Yeah, you heard me. I get a redo this week. Now, what precisely are we redoing? Well, if you go all the way back to the very early days of this show, I decided to do what I called a bonus episode. The idea behind the bonus episode was to get more content out there as quickly as I could in order to try to drive downloads and listeners as fast as I could. In theory, that wasn't a bad idea. In practice, well, let's just say I screwed the proverbial pooch with the show. (laughs) I mean, that bonus episode was supposed to be a guide to gaming terms, so that listeners that maybe didn't get all the terms we gamers use would have a guide to exactly what the hell I was talking about. Again, in theory, it wasn't a bad idea. Again, in practice, it sucked. And to be honest, it sucked because of me. I made a number of bad decisions concerning that bonus episode, and all of them combined for it to suck royally. First off, I decided on a Thursday night when I was producing the regular episode of the show that I was going to even do a bonus episode. I decided I'd have it ready by the following Tuesday. Again, if I'd actually worked on the damn thing before I announced it, I might have had a chance. But I hadn't. I left myself the entire weekend to get it done, with the idea being I'd record it on Monday night for a Tuesday morning release. Now, that might have worked if that weekend hadn't been my game weekend. I spent Friday night getting my D&D game ready to run for that Saturday night, so that left me with Sunday to work on the podcast, and, well, let's just say my Xbox was calling my name. So we get to the second way I screwed up. I decided I could freestyle game terms and work out a pretty decent show. Pretty arrogant, I'll grant you, but I had a reasonable reason for it, at least in my own mind. I don't know if I've said this before, but from 1995 to 2000, I was an on-air talent at two different radio stations, so I had some experience with talking off the cuff in a live situation. In my opinion, therefore, I shouldn't have had an issue with riffing in a recorded situation where I could edit out my mistakes. Yeah, I was wrong. And that gets us to the third and final way I messed up. When everything had gone bad, rather than admitting I couldn't deliver what I promised, I decided to just drive through everything and get something recorded and posted because something would be better than nothing, right? No. I mean, if you like the show, great, and I'm sure I probably just offended you, for which I have to apologize. But I gotta be honest, if you liked it, you were one of the very few who did. Trust me, I've got the emails and Twitter DMs to prove it. So, with a new year of the show, I've decided to rectify the other big mistake I made in the early part of our show's history. I mean, two weeks ago, I fixed the issues from episode one. So this week, I get to finally do a proper gaming terms show. So buckle up, kids. The tour bus is fueled up and ready to go. And before I get to the first term, I need to toss out a disclaimer. I know that some of the terms I'm going to use here might have different definitions depending on the game or group. If I know of alternate definitions, I'll make it a point to mention them. Or you can always just hit me up on all the socials and tell me what your alternate definition is and we'll put it in a future episode. Also, I will be putting some of my own context into these terms as I define them, and they'll come from my experiences. Again, if you've got different experiences or different contexts, hit me up. We'll share it. You'll get your props, the whole nine. 
Okay, so with all that out of the way, it's time for me to become your own personal game term Google. Let's start with player character and non-player character, since those tend to be consistent across game systems. Player characters, or PCs for short, are the characters controlled by the player in the game you're playing. It, it's just that simple. So you and your three friends are playing a game run by somebody else. Your characters are the PCs. Non-player characters, or NPCs for short, are the characters controlled by the person running the game. The term for that person is coming up in a minute, so just be patient. To continue the commentary from the PC definition, the person running the game you and your friends are playing in runs the NPCs. Those are the various individuals your group runs into throughout the course of your game. Some will help you, some will hurt you, and some don't really care about you one way or the other. Sorry, not sorry. So let's move on and define who that jerk running your game is. And I say jerk because in my group at present, I'm the one running the game. The two terms used most frequently are Dungeon Master and Game Master. And for the record, the two are not necessarily interchangeable. Game Master, or GM for short, works with any game setting. Whether you're playing D&D, Deadlands, Shadowrun, or Vampire, you can call the person running the game the GM. Yes, I know that Deadlands prefers to call their GM the Marshal, and Vampire prefers calling theirs the Storyteller, but GM would still work and still be appropriate. Dungeon Master, or DM for short, was initially created and used for D&D, though it would also work for Pathfinder and Warhammer Fantasy Roleplaying, among other games. So, in short, a DM can also be called a GM, but a GM can't normally be called a DM. I confuse you yet? Hey, since we're talking about GMs and DMs, how about we define what that thing many of them have set up in front of their play space is? Game Master Screen, or Dungeon Master Screen, depending, is a threefold screen, usually made up of cardboard, but sometimes it's made up of other materials, that the GM or DM uses to hide their notes and roles from the players. I would also note that screens made for specific games like D&D have charts and tables printed on the GM side of the screen that they can reference during their games. I'm not going to say the information is necessarily useful for all GMs, but it's there. I also want to point out that I've seen larger screens at conventions, like five panels, but those normally don't fold and they've been custom built for the GM in question. Give you a great example that you can go online and see right now. If you go to any episode of Critical Role, that screen that's in front of Matt Mercer, that is a custom-made screen for him. Since we're on the subject of products used for the game, I've got one more for you. The character sheet is, as the name implies, the written record of your character in a particular game. It'll have the relevant statistics for your character, as well as skills, weapons, equipment, and spells or special gadgets, depending on the game. And depending on the game is a big qualifier here. A D&D character sheet is going to look a lot different than a Shadowrun game, which is going to look a lot different from a vampire game. And a game like Toon makes those three look like apples while it's a pineapple. So there is a difference there. All right, so we've defined the character, the people running the game, and some of the tools used. Maybe we need to define some types of games before we get any more specific. Some of these styles are styles you might not have ever seen played or get to play yourself, but if we're defining terms, let's be consistent. Live-action role-playing games, or LARPs, are games that are acted out in a troop style by those playing the game. 
To an observer, it can look as if the players are acting out some sort of an improv play, and the amount of die rolling is minimal if it's used at all. Vampire and the various World of Darkness games are the ones that LARPers primarily use, but I've heard of some others being played in the LARP style as well. Now, these next two aren't frequently used, but I've heard the terms used enough times that I felt confident using them here. A rules-heavy game is one that has a very heavy amount of mechanics and rules to it. Basically, this type of game tries to have a rule or a system or a plan for every possible type of action or encounter in a game. Second edition D&D has been accused of being rules-heavy from time to time. And I know there are more out there, but I don't prefer a rules-heavy game, so I haven't played too many of them. A rules light game would therefore be the opposite of a rules heavy game. They have generic rules and mechanics and they tend to focus more on the narrative than on the rules themselves. Toon is actually a great example of that as the actual rules are pretty small with the GM being encouraged to follow the rule. If it's funny and it works for the scene, allow it. Now, these next two aren't specific types of games but rather methods to play the games or to watch them in the case of our next term. An actual play game, also called live play, is a game played as a podcast or a web show. This form of game shows all of the usual mechanics of a game session, including die rolls, GM calls, and interactions between PCs and NPCs and PCs with each other. Critical Role and Dimension 20 are just two examples of this type of game, and I covered more in a previous episode of this show, which is available in the archives. An online RPG is a computer or console game that uses RPG-style game mechanics and styles. One more for the list, and this one shows up in a couple of different games. A living campaign, or shared campaign, is a gaming format that allows for players throughout the community to play the same adventures in the same universe. D&D and Pathfinder have both used this style in the past, and I believe there's a few other systems that have used it as well. Vampire uses a version of this, but sometimes it's more a general campaign setting with the GM encouraged to develop their own adventures within it. Seems like we're speeding along here, and we probably are, but let's get into terms that might come up in creating characters and playing the actual games. Armor class, or AC for short. Armor class determines how hard it is to hit a target. Armor class, at least in D&D, is determined by your dexterity modifier, the armor you wear, and either your racial bonuses or feats you can acquire. So, for example, if you have an AC of 18, it's going to take a total of 18 with your roll and any modifiers you add to hit your character. I should also note that these days, AC is pretty much just a D&D term. Most of the games that have come out since then have come up with their own system of what it means to hit a target, and they've decided that armor isn't the best way to determine it, though it does have some influence on it. If we're going to talk about armor class, we kind of need to talk about hit points. Hit points, or HP, are the number of points your character has before they fall to the ground unconscious. I say unconscious because in D&D 5th edition, characters get a chance to make death saves before actually dying. So if your character has 15 hit points, they can't take a whole lot of damage before they go down. On the other hand, a character with 100 or more hit points is probably a fighter of some type, and they can take a lot of punishment before they drop. Much like armor class, hit points have also been changed in a number of other systems because some gamers, and therefore some game designers, have decided that hit points aren't the best method to utilize to keep track of how long your character can stay up. 
Deadlands Classic is a good example of that, using wounds and hit locations to more accurately track the damage a character takes. Thacko, or two-hit armor class zero, is an old-school D&D term. This is what AC was in D&D and AD&D prior to 3rd edition. The basic idea is that Thacko is what an attacker would have to roll to hit the armor class of zero. With this version, the lower the roll, the better it was, and there were modifiers to help you lower your result further. Needless to say, there was a ton of math involved in working out Thacko, which is probably where D&D and other role-playing games picked up their reputations for being math-heavy. All right, I just used the word modifier, so let's define it. A modifier is a number added to or subtracted from a die roll based on a specific skill or attribute. In games that have spells in them, some spells can also help with modifiers, as can gadgets in game like Shadowrun. Oh look, there's two more terms we need to define, skills and attributes. Okay, so attributes are what would be considered natural characteristics of the character. You know, things they're born with and can maybe improve over time. Most games have a variation on these six. Strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. And yes, I used the D&D base six. I did that because I'm assuming most of our listeners have at the very least heard of D&D. I should further note that modifiers from attributes are based on how high or low the score is. For example, in D&D, a strength of 18 would have a plus 4 modifier, which means melee attacks, hand-to-hand, -hand, would have a plus 4 modifier to them. However, if your strength was an 8, you'd instead have a minus 1 modifier, which means your melee attacks would have a minus 1 modifier to them. Let's get skills defined. Skills are considered to be learned things, like climbing, tracking, languages, and such. Pretty much every game system has a skill system, and those systems give modifiers to checks made using them. Going back to the D&D example, because why not, each skill is tied to an attribute, so your climbing ability is tied to strength. Using the previous example, your 18 strength gives you a plus 4 modifier, and that means your climb skill gets to a plus 4 automatically. Now, in 5th edition D&D, you also get a proficiency in a certain number of skills, and as a fighter, climb is one of them, and it adds its own modifier to your skill. So if you've got a strong fighter, chances are they're going to be one hell of a good climber. Next up is difficulty class. Also called DC for short, difficulty class is a target number primarily used in games with spells. The DC would be what you'd need to make your saving throw to avoid the effects of the spell. There are a few other uses for this term, but spell DC is probably the most used, so we'll go with that here. In D&D, here we go with D&D again, the save DC is actually determined by the spellcaster. It's 10 plus the spell level plus the relevant spellcaster ability modifier, which in D&D is either intelligence, wisdom, or charisma, depending on the type of spellcaster. So... For example, a sorcerer with a charisma modifier of plus 3 casting a 5th level spell would have a save DC of 18. 10 plus 3 plus 5 is 18. I think I got my math right there, but I've been wrong before. Math never was my strong suit. Look at my checkbook if you've got any arguments. Okay, so what exactly is a saving throw? Well, if we look back to the definition of DC, we see that a saving throw is a role a character makes to avoid the effect of a spell. In some cases, the spell is shrugged off and does nothing. In other cases, a saving throw can cause you to only take a percentage of the damage rather than the full amount. Kind of depends on the spell. 
I mean, if somebody casts a charm spell on you, successful save means you shrugged it off and you're still under your own control. But if someone casts a fireball on you, a successful save means you take half damage. One more spell-related term before I move on. Area of effect will come up when someone casts a spell. The area of effect is a zone, typically in feet, that a particular spell will cover. Also, the area of effect defines how the spell comes out, i.e. in a straight line, a cone, or if it's something that affects one person or the user. To give an example, let's go to the oldest of the old gaming tropes, the fireball spell from D&D. The area of effect of the spell is a 20-foot radius from a point determined by the caster. Now, the caster has to have clear line of sight to that point, but as long as they know where it is, they can place the center of the fireball there, and everything in a 20-foot radius from that spot gets fried. For the record, I've had wizards in my group spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out the math of where the closest member of their party is so that they can set the fireball off to do the maximum amount of damage to the monsters or bad guys, but not hit their own party. Then again, I've also played in parties where the wizard basically just said, screw the party and dropped a fireball in the middle of the room. Whatever works for you, I guess. Okay, so we've talked about different types of roles and effects. Maybe we need to talk about the role that kicks off the combat. Initiative is, by definition, the determination of who goes first and in what order PCs, NPCs, and monsters go in in a given period of time, which is usually around. Now, in many games, D&D, again, being the one that comes to mind first, this is accomplished by rolling a 20-sided die, adding your dexterity modifier, plus any other modifiers you might have. Other games use a variation on this system. The highest roll goes first, and everyone else goes in numerical order from highest to lowest. Deadlands Classic does a twist on this. The roll is a cognition roll with a target number of 5. If you roll a 5, you get to draw two playing cards from the deck, because you automatically get to draw one card. For every additional 5 on that die, you get another card up to 5 cards total. It's the suit and number on the cards that determines who goes when. Again, if you want to know more about that, you can check out my other show, Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along, which is available wherever you get your podcasts, because Deadlands Classic is the game we're using for that show. While I'm on the subject of roles, there's a term that comes up at the table from time to time, and I'm sure if you've seen a live stream, you've heard of it. The concept of a natural 20 or a natural 1. They're also referred to nat 20 and nat 1 for short. A nat 1 or nat 20 means that the actual roll of the 20-sided die is a 1 or a 20. That's it. But the actual roll means a bit more. A nat 20 is automatically a critical hit in 5th edition D&D, which means you roll double your damage dice. In other words, a critical hit is assumed to have hit a vital, therefore critical, part of the opponent, which increases the damage, thus more dice. I do need to note that in 3rd edition D&D, which is where the concept was written in as a permanent part of the game rules, a nat 20 wasn't an automatic crit. You had to re-roll your d20. If that roll would have succeeded, then you got your double damage. If it didn't succeed, you just got regular damage. Of course, that was on attack rolls. If you were attempting a task, a critical success meant you just pulled it off with something extra, which it still does, and sometimes that leads to bigger and better things than what you had originally intended to do. Like, you can do it with style, or swag, or... Okay, I'm starting to sound lame. Let's move on. Now, a nat 1 doesn't mean anything in D&D 5th edition. However, if we go back to where it began, which is 3rd edition, a nat 1 meant you had the possibility of a critical failure. 
that was either confirmed or not by another role of the same type. If that role would have succeeded, you merely failed at your task. However, if the role missed, you were determined to have critically failed at whatever you were trying. And if that happened to be a dangerous task, like climbing a mountain or leaping over a large chasm, you were probably falling a very long way. I was going to cover the concept of a critical hit or critical failure, but I guess I just did that in the natural definition, so extra credit for me on that one. Yay! While I'm thinking about it, let's talk about the concept of advantage. It's used in several different games, but D&D 5e is the game I'm most familiar with. Advantage is given to a player on a roll when they meet certain criteria that would present them with an advantage to complete the task at hand. For example, if my barbarian is native to the area of the plains my party is going through, he might be given advantage to track someone moving through those plains because he'd be familiar enough with them to know the most likely path someone would take to get through them safely. Of course, where we have advantage, we also have disadvantage. That same barbarian tracking that same person now winds up in a forest his quarry is very familiar with. The barbarian would be at a disadvantage since the person he's tracking knows the area and he doesn't. Mechanically, this is what it means. For advantage, you roll 2d20 and use the best result. For disadvantage, you roll 2d20 and you keep the worst result. All right, one more term in this section, and it's one that makes many a gamer cry themselves to sleep. Total Party Kill, or TPK for short, is when the entire party's characters die in the same battle. Yeah, I know, some people consider TPK to go across a single night's gaming. For me, no, TPK means they all die in the same battle. The TPK is really an old school concept, as many groups and GMs today tend to avoid TPK for a number of reasons. However, when I was first learning to play, and honestly for about the first 20 years or so I played, TPKs were not only possible, but I was involved in more of them than I would care to admit. I mean, I remember one that happened when we were gaming at a Boy Scout camp out when I was 12 or 13. We had a TPK five minutes into the game. I wish I was kidding about that, but I'm not. We were trying to cross a stream to get into a cave, and most of the party drowned because they were wearing heavy armor and forgot to take it off. I drowned because I took off my heavy armor to swim and failed my check. Our character sheets were burned in the campfire, and the game ended. So yeah, I get why some GMs just don't like them. All right, next up, let's look at some terms concerning gamers and ideas or concepts about how they play. For the record, these aren't the five types of gamers. I'm doing a riff on that in a minute or two. Metagaming is a term you'll hear from time to time in your game. And for me, metagaming is a fine line. The term metagaming refers to the player using knowledge their character wouldn't have in the game to make decisions for the character in the game itself. I've dealt with variations on this in my own games multiple times, so here's an example. If a player understands what all the components to make gunpowder are, and they understand the methods and techniques used to make it, that doesn't mean their character in a medieval game can whip up a batch of gunpowder. To even suggest it, really, is an example of metagaming. For those who might argue with me on this, I remind you of a phrase I use quite often during this podcast. You cannot necessarily take real-world concepts and try to apply them to a fantasy setting. The rules don't necessarily align. And that example is a fairly extreme one, but I think it makes my point as an example. Next up are the dual concepts of rules as written and rules as intended. 
Now I have to be honest, I've never used those specific terms to refer to my games or how my games are played, but once you hear the definitions, you can probably apply them to your own games moving forward. Rules as written means you follow the rules as they are written. We're not reading anything into them or trying to figure out what the designers meant when they wrote them. If the rulebook says I can do X thing, I can do X thing, no matter how flippin' illogical it sounds. Rules as intended is the opposite of this coin. In this situation, we use the rules, but if we believe the designers really meant to use them in a way slightly different than the way they were written, usually because the rules are so text heavy they don't make any sense, then we do it that way. I'm not gonna use a game example for this. I'm gonna use a real world example instead. Think of where you work. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm making you think of the place you don't wanna think about during the podcast you use to get away from those things, but it's only gonna be for a minute. Now. Every place I've ever worked has at least one person who follows every single company rule to the letter. There's no interpretation of the rules and there are no exceptions or variations. It's an almost robotic adherence to the rules. However, those same places tend to have at least one person, like me, who sees the rules but tries to figure out what the person who wrote them actually meant for employees to do. Yes, that means that sometimes I disregard the rule in question because it's so poorly written that it makes zero sense, but if they'd intended for me to follow the damn thing, they'd have written it better. And yeah, I'm really popular with my bosses. Trust me. I also want to hit on another pair of terms that I've used on the show before, but I can't remember if I defined them properly or not. Role-playing, R-O-L-L, versus role-playing, R-O-L-E. So, R-O-L-L role-playing is where we're so consumed with following the rules to the letter, we're basically just rolling the dice and announcing our intentions with little flavor added to the game itself. R-O-L-E role-playing is really the opposite of this. That type of role-playing is where we take the time to flesh out our characters, then play them to the hilt. You want to play your pirate like Jack Sparrow? Better bust out your best Johnny Depp and get to it then, because I'm busting out my best Carrie Elways from Princess Bride. Get the difference? If not, punch those into YouTube and you'll find dozens of videos that go into great detail about those differences. Okay, there's one more term I wanna hit before I get into the various types of gamers you might run into in your game. There's a type of game that's called the Monty Hall. For you older listeners, you'll remember the old version of Let's Make a Deal, which was hosted by a gentleman by the name of Monty Hall. Well, the Monty Hall game, and that's Hall, H-A-U-L, works pretty much like the game show. Your players are gathering as much treasure as they possibly can and buying as much powerful stuff as they can with it. Literally, they're getting a haul of stuff disproportionate to their levels and sometimes this can break the game itself. For the record, I've had more games than I'd care to admit break down into Monty Halls and I attribute some of that to running games off the cuff rather than being prepared. Okay. So I promised I'd get into the types of gamers you might run into in your game, so let's run through that list. Before I do, I have to give credit to Matt Colville as I pulled the list from one of his Running the Game videos, and he credits Robin Laws for them. Colville adds another, but I don't know that I agree with him on that one, so I'm leaving it out. And while I'm using his list, the commentary on them is all mine. First up is the Power Gamer. The power gamer is the gamer who wants to be as powerful as they can possibly be and they want to get the best stuff. Sometimes that also means the coolest stuff. The power gamer can also be called the min-maxer 
as when they create their character, they specifically craft it to have the best ability stats in the areas they need them in for their character and the lowest in areas that shouldn't affect their ability to go forth and be awesome. The power gamer will also take skills and or feats that allow them to be as powerful as the rules will allow them to be. And you'll find from time to time that the power gamer will put their toes on that metaphorical line, but they're not going to cross it. The power gamer does care about completing tasks and accomplishing goals, but usually this is so that they can get gold or other treasures that allow them to continue to get more powerful items to continue to make them the awesome character they want to have. Next up is the Murder Hobo. Now, the Murder Hobo goes by other names, but I have to admit they're not coming to mind as I record this. Just by the name, you should have the idea of what the Murder Hobo wants to do. Kill the bad guys and all the monsters that they can. It's not necessarily a reckless killing. The Murder Hobo just tends to prefer action over negotiation. If presented with a violent and a non-violent resolution to a situation, the Murder Hobo will usually take the violent one. Also, the murder hobo occasionally drifts into the power gamer category because they tend to work their ability scores and gear out to make them really good at killing things. The tactician is another type of player you might find at the table. The tactician is another version of the min-maxer, but rather than min-maxing their character, they like to min-max the entire party. Let's put it another way. They want everybody in the party to act in the optimal manner in any situation. The tactician will usually try to accomplish this when the group starts talking about how they want to handle things. The tactician will typically be the one who points out that you should be using this weapon instead of that weapon because it's better for the situation. Or you should cast this spell so that the other player can do this thing because it'll work better. Now, I'll admit some groups like having a tactician because it means they don't have to spend as much time strategizing due to the tactician handling all of that for them. Other groups, though, tend to get pissed off at the tactician because they don't want to be told what to do and would like to make their own decisions about what should be done with their own characters and how they should do it. I should note here that I'll provide some suggestions on how to deal with these various player types once I've defined all of them, so just hang on another minute or two. We move along now to the actor. The actor is the player who seems to always be in character. They have the voice, which they always use, as well as mannerisms they feel fit their character best, and they take every opportunity they can to use them and portray their character to the fullest. The actor will also tend to be the one who likes to roleplay the most. After all, roleplay gives them the best opportunity to play their character to the hilt. You can't necessarily do that if you're fighting all the time. Though I will say that when the actor is forced to fight, they're going to try to find a way to still portray the character to the best of their ability. Also, the actor will frequently inform you that they're doing what they're doing in a game because it's how the character would act, and because they've been acting that way the whole time, you can believe it. Alright, this next one has many names. The asshole, douchebag, dickhead. Colville calls it the wangrod, so as not to swear. This is the opposite side of the actor. Typically, the Wangrod, the name's growing on me, just wants to do mean, cruel stuff no matter the situation. The Wangrod is the type of character who would murder the NPC in cold blood in front of a room full of witnesses for no tangible reason other than to argue, my character's chaotic neutral. I'm just playing my character. Need I say more as to why this type of player is an asshole? All right. The Storyteller would be the polar opposite of the Tactician. 
While the tactician wants to do and wants the group to do whatever would be tactically appropriate, the storyteller wants to do what would be dramatically appropriate. It doesn't necessarily mean they want to act things out. They just want drama. If that means doing something inanely stupid because it would be high drama or it would be that big moment like in 80s action movies with the explosions and the hero strolling through, bet your ass they're going to do it. The Specialist plays the same character game after game. And by the way, that's regardless of the system you're playing. This is the player who wants to play Iron Man in medieval Europe, in modern America, in space, underwater. Yeah, literally they play one character and they have no desire to change. A variation on this that I've noticed is the player who plays the same type of character from game to game. That could be as simple as the player who always plays some sort of rogue or the player who always plays some sort of marksman. All right, last up on my list is the casual gamer. The casual gamer has very simple goals. They show up for the game, they hang out with friends, and they really just want to observe what's going on around them. Sure, they make their die rolls and they take their actions, but that's pretty much all they do. They don't go out of their way to make suggestions or try to do things outside of what the rest of the group has decided to do. In fact, the perfect game night for many casual gamers is a night where they wind up not having to do anything because they just get to sit back and watch it all. Okay, so how do we deal with these various types of players? I mean, I know I'm providing definitions in this episode, but since we're into this, let's go the whole nine yards. Dealing with the power gamer, actor, and casual gamer is pretty easy. Let them be who they're going to be, because typically they're not hurting anybody except maybe themselves. Give the power gamer and the actor their opportunities to have some spotlight and be cool, and they'll be content. Leave the casual gamer alone to do what they do, and nine times out of ten, they'll tell you they had fun. So who's to say they're wrong? The murder hobo is one I found difficult to deal with personally. Usually the group is the one who deals with this player type because they get tired of the player messing up their plans or costing them valuable allies or information. So I monitor what's going on and try to make sure things don't get too far out of hand. I don't always succeed, but I try. The tactician and the storyteller can be a little tricky to manage. The tactician is another player type that typically gets handled by the rest of the group because they eventually get tired of them and decide to do what they want to, whether it's tactically optimal or not. Now, when that happens, the tactician can get their undies in a bunch, but a little ego massaging should smooth things over. If not, hey, you know what? They can get glad in the same undies they got mad in. The storyteller has to be handled a bit differently, especially considering that at least half the time, they're basically only putting themselves in danger. The rest of the time, the group will call them out on their dumbassery, and the storyteller will either make an adjustment or blow them off. You can point out to them, privately of course, that their actions are putting their character in jeopardy, but at the end of the day, you're probably better off letting them be themselves. The specialist. Ugh, the specialist. I just let that go. If a player has one kind of character they play, then so long as you can figure out a way to allow it in your game without breaking it, I say do it. The player will be happy and you'll have fewer headaches. If the rest of the group has an issue with it, well, maybe the group needs to have a discussion. But stick to your proverbial guns, if that's your style, of course. And of course, I saved the asshole for last. Personally, this playing style pisses me off. Nothing bothers me more than a player being an asshole in game and claiming that they're just playing my character. 
I won't play with this kind of player if I can avoid it because no amount of logic in the world is going to get through to them. Peer pressure doesn't even seem to work because they believe they're in the right, again, because they're just playing my character. I need to add another player type to this list, and it's a type that can and usually does combine with one of the eight I've already listed. The rules lawyer is a player who is always going to the rules to try to eliminate a decision made by the GM or trying to lessen anything bad that happened to the group. While that might sound like a good thing, the rules lawyer won't ever give up. And they'll argue anything they disagree with, and they'll use the rules to do it. In my experience, most rule lawyers are either power gamers, tacticians, or assholes. The way I typically deal with a rules lawyer is to remind them that it's my game, therefore my interpretation of the rules. If that fails, I get a little passive aggressive, and I will use the rules against that player when they do something that goes against what the rules state. Childish, I know, but I hate rules lawyers. So we're almost done with our definitions, but I wanted to throw out two more terms before we wrap up today. And they're two terms I've used in past episodes, but I figured no show with terminology in it could be complete without them. The sandbox and the railroad. Now those are both styles of games, so it comes from the GM. Think of a sandbox game like an open world video game. The most recent couple of Assassin's Creed games come to mind for me. The sandbox has a story, and it has some major plots that need to be covered. However, the group has a lot of latitude in how they do them, sometimes in what order they do them, and where they can go. Frequently, the sandbox has different scenarios for different parts of the world the group can adventure in, though sometimes the scenarios are just adjusted to take those areas into consideration. The Railroad, on the other hand, is a game where the players don't have quite as much control. The group is basically led along to accomplish the tasks in numerical order, and while there might be a thing or two that they can do in a different order, overall the GM is leading the group by the nose to get them where they want them to be. If you're curious about a more in-depth description of these, Matt Colville devoted an entire episode of his YouTube show running the game to these two terms. Spoiler alert, he uses The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings as his examples. Which game style is best? That depends entirely on your players. Some like the sandbox, while others want to be led along. It also depends on your style as a GM. A sandbox game takes a hell of a lot more work than a railroad. So I guess what I'm saying is dealer's choice. And with that, we come to the end of today's tour. Next week, I feel like taking a tour of the world of darkness. That means we'll be covering Vampire the Masquerade, Werewolf, Mage, and the rest of the titles in that particular line. And somehow, I'm already sensing this is going to take two episodes. I know I usually do my thank yous at the beginning of the show, but I decided to put them here this week because I wanted to get right into the definitions. I wanted to thank everyone for the response to last week's episode. I got a ton of DMs on Twitter, plus a handful of emails from folks who appreciated the show and who thanked me for putting some focus on mental health. At some point, I'm going to probably do another episode on the topic because this is a field that I've got a ton of information on. Speaking of shows, I'd like to encourage you to check out my other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. The idea of the show is we take one game and create an entire campaign from scratch. I also teach you how to create characters, and I provide the GM with tips I've come up with to make things easier. And since we're currently building a Deadlands Classic game and my group is running it, I'm also providing a campaign debriefing for the second portion of the show so that we can see how the things we created worked. 
That's Bad GM's Campaign Build Along, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Hit them up for license-free, royalty-free music for your project. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Follow us on Facebook at Bad GM Productions, Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube Bad GM Productions, Twitch Bad GM, and our email address is BadGMProductions at gmail.com. Okay, so next week we enter the world of darkness. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and your role-playing history.